1: Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. I have an oddball episode for you tonight. We're going to have a few of these because the Orioles are playing some great baseball, and and we do not want to pass up this opportunity to do a few crossover episodes uh, at this time. Went to the Orioles game today on May 18th against the Angels, and they did happen to lose uh, a nice back and forth game, but didn't end up their way, unfortunately. Uh, but we're going to take the topic we have for you tonight is talking about high variance Orioles that will have the largest impact on the pennant race this year. We'll talk detail that a little bit more, but our guest, Connor Newcomb from On Orioles. Connor, how are you doing?
2: I'm great, Ken. Uh, I'm happy to be on and, and talk goes. And I know for for a lot of Baltimore sports fans who may have put the Orioles to the side a little bit for, for good reason for a while. I know a lot of people are, are jumping back in and I welcome everyone back in. Like hop on the Orioles bandwagon once again. Let's do it. Uh, let's make it a baseball and a football town once again.
1: I, I'm really loving... The way the Orioles are built right now, it's not just the homegrown talent because no one would be upset about the fact that this team is is all drafted. And the Elias rebuild is a thing of beauty uh, that, that, that you know, you, you, you literally will get once in a lifetime a rebuild this extraordinary in terms of, of the youth all being built within the system. But the thing I really love about it is the baseball of my youth. And I'm almost 60 years old. Um, it was really in the in the '70s and '80s, and um, the Orioles had 18 consecutive winning seasons between 1968 and 1985. A lot of different ways to win ball games back then. They certainly had great pitching, a lot of it. They certainly played in great pitchers' ballpark. But the thing they always did was outwalk their opponents. And Elias and his cronies have brought back the walk to the organization in a way that had just been lost. They were in a desert of. Of really putting the walk first. Not only do I think it's important as a leading economic indicator, so to speak, of hitting statistics, I think it's absolutely critical for the drama of baseball. I think a lot of the drama of baseball is tied up in in pitch count and walks.
2: Yeah, and the good thing with that is the whole swing decision revamp is not just Hey, we've gotten this player to the big leagues. Let's work on their walk rate. It is the moment you enter the system, whether it's as a draft pick, whether it's as a prospect, you get traded here, whether it's as a free agent signing, even who's already in the big leagues, they will work on your walk rate. So whether it is, you know, a 17 year old who's still in the Dominican Republic in the summer league, or it's Adam Frazier who came over in his thirties and has by far the highest walk rate of his career this year. Up and down, the Orioles are instilling that. And it's been a little tougher to do it for the guys who kind of came up in the Dan Duquette system and are still Mm -hmm. here. But even they have made some strides as well. And and, and you're right, that's been... It's been a huge moniker here for the OS.
1: If you watch a lot of MILB, and I know you watch a lot of MILB probably to, to, to keep track of the prospects on a on a regular basis, but you just notice what a bunch of grinders they are at all levels. I mean it's just so much fun to watch baseball and to just take, 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 and and you, you, you uh, you just enjoy it to, to a level. Jackson Holiday, you know, the number one prospect of course has a ridiculous walk right now uh in in his relatively limited but still in my opinion there's signature significance to what he's done in terms of his walk rate and his and his um, uh, performance at. I guess he did play a few games in the FCL, right?
2: And and then at, at Del Marva and Aberdeen. Yeah, and, and and Jackson Holiday is one of the guys who, you know, you're not identifying one or two traits while you're drafting him. You're drafting him because has the, you have the number one pick, and you're looking for the best player available. But he does fall into a category where. The O's are now drafting guys who already have that trait, whether it be in high school or college. Like, hey, look at these walk numbers. Look at these on-base numbers. We can even move this a little bit more. And we can come up with a guy who is going to have a you know 370-plus on-base percentage no matter how he's hitting. And that's you know what's happening for Gunnar Henderson right now. Mm-hmm. He's right at the Mendoza line, but he's walking top 10 in baseball. And so he's still a productive hitter at the plate. And it almost gives you – I think the big thing with the walk rate and the swing decisions is – it gives a player a higher floor than they would have had in the past. And if you are struggling with the bat or you're just getting really unlucky with the bat, you can still help your team
1: play you uh, no doubt know a lot of Oriole history. I think the, this player is probably before your time, but if if you know anything about Glenn Gulliver when he came up and really helped the Orioles during the 1982 stretch drive at a, at a pennant race there, a guy who hit 200, I think it was 200 right on the nose for that season, but he still had a 363 on base with a ton of walks. Actually somewhat similar to Henderson, but he walked even more. And uh, just an unbelievable one-dimensional player. Uh, who, uh, who Weaver was able to find a use for. And, and
2: uh, I, I love those those Weaver teams and how they attacked winning Baseball with the walk. Yeah. Earl Weaver, one thing about him. He will find a way to use a player if there is one trade up that makes him worthy of being in the big leagues. He will use it again and again to help the team win. Yeah.
1: It's, the game has changed so much. I don't, I don't want to go too far offline because I really want to get into our episode, but the game has changed so much from my youth. And one of the major things has been the relationship between hitters and pitchers on an active roster. And you used to have 16 and nine or 15 and 10. And a lot of times with the Orioles back then, it was 16 and nine. And Weaver didn't even really use his ninth guy very often because he concentrated his innings almost as much as Billy Martin did. He just happened to have pitchers who could really do it. In Palmer and Palmer, McNally, and, and and Cuellar and Dobson and some of those other guys, but he he got away with that. But the 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 basic tenet of baseball in that in those days was that the offense got to make the last decision on the platoon matchup they were going to get. So you almost always had two pinch hitters ready to go, a lefty and a righty, for example, if you wanted to put them in and eventually get the platoon advantage for any particular um, high leverage
2: at bat. Yeah, I mean John Lowenstein, like the 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 poster child for that uh, for the Orioles, the amount of big hits he had, and, and basically being a platoon guy. And the platoon still exists, but you're right, you know, it's a it's a four player bench at this point yeah. in Major League Baseball. It's basically across the board. You see thirteen pitchers and thirteen hitters, and they're doing things to try and get it closer to what it was because you can have as many hitters as you want on the roster now, but you cannot have more than thirteen pitchers. So at the very least, they're trying to stop teams from a team would go fifteen pitchers and eleven hitters. I think right now, if the league allowed them to. Well,
1: and and they don't need that for an individual game, but they still use that with the option rules to to effectively have fifteen pitchers or or sometimes seventeen on their staff that they can rotate up and down. We're definitely seeing that with the Orioles this year. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Let's get into it because this is a this is a very fun topic. So here's the, the setup: is this basically we're trying to find identify the six players, and we're going to identify them in order from least to most in this group that have the highest variance of outcome for this year for the Orioles. And in terms of their impact on a potential pennant race for the Orioles. So, you know, I, I, there could be some very good players on this list who I don't necessarily believe, or Connor doesn't uh, are, are necessarily the high variance players uh, that would be, but I've, I've got my list identified. Connor's got his, we're going to count them down from six to one. in the way we've done for any number of other topics, Connor, you're the guest. Please start us off with number six.
2: I think I went off the board for number six, and I think I have less of a good reason for, for where I went number six, but I just think this player, it's going to sneak up on the Orioles with how much the variance in his play will affect the team. And I went with James McCann, and you may be thinking, Connor, that's the backup catcher to maybe the best catcher in baseball, a guy who, adly at this point, I believe there's only been two games where he has not played at all, all season. So you're thinking – What's the plan there? Well, Adley Rutschman is not going to catch every day. He's pretty close to it right now, but he's going to DH. He will get a few full days off. There'll be a couple times, or even I know on Sunday, he pinch hit as the last batter of the game. So there'll be games where you basically don't feel his presence for most of the day. Now, last season, Robinson Chirinos was probably the worst catcher in baseball. And when Adley Rutchman was not fully in the lineup or has not been fully in the lineup, the Orioles, I believe, are 6-13 in the last two years since he's been up. Winning percentage much, much better when he is in there over those now sixty five games, I believe, that he has been with the big league team. So for James McCann, if he can hit 240, and if he can be good defensively when he's in there once or twice a week, and if he can hit lefties. I think on the upside, he can make the Orioles breathe a sigh of relief when they do D.H. Adley Rutschman, or they do give him one or two full days off, knowing that there's not going to be a black hole in the lineup like there was last season. And the Orioles have really struggled with Adley, not in there behind the plate. I did go a little off board with this one with James McCann, but I just think if he really tanks and looks like the player that he was with the Mets, the other issue is the Orioles, despite the depth of the system, don't really have a good replacement for him in AAA. So that would be kind of the other reason why I got him here at number six.
1: Okay, interesting, very interesting call. I, I, he wouldn't make, wouldn't be anywhere close to my, my top six. But, but a couple of things I've noticed about him. One is defensively. Um, not a good pitch framer, at least, you know, g- g- we actually sat right behind the plate today. Got given some tickets by a loyal listener for a long time and really appreciate that by the way, Doug. Um, and, and, uh, he did not look like a good pitch framer also had a pass ball in the game does not block the ball exceptionally well. Uh, I, I would also say, but he is useful to the, Raven, the Ravens, the Orioles, because he's a right-handed batter and, and that's. If you if you're gonna have a platoon player at catcher and your backup catcher is gonna be a platoon player like this, having a guy who can come in and face a left-hander where the Orioles are honestly, I think, are pretty weak. I know they've hit better against against lefties. I don't really think that's their better side. And certainly with Urias out, I don't really believe it to be the case.
2: Yeah, and and they will they will hit righties better, I think, throughout the season. They're hitting lefties well right now. Good story in the in the Baltimore Sun about that on Thursday. Uh, just how the team is basically flipping what they did last year, which was not hit lefties at all. But they've got good lefties. they got more good lefties coming up to the team at some point this year. I just think if James McCann can be productive at all, he's going to be helpful for the O's and and allow them to be like, okay, we're going to DH Adley today, and our pitching staff doesn't have to worry. And I do think on the flip side, they don't have another catching prospect, really, who's big league ready. So if James McCann really tanks – you're turning to an Anthony Bemboom or a Mark Colesberry, who are both going to hit 100, probably in the big league level. Maverick Campley? I don't think the bat is there where they're going to pull him up this year. I think the defense is clearly there, but I don't even think the bat is close enough where they'd say, well, you know, he's playing once a week. He's going to go one for eight this week or whatever it may be. I don't even think it's there yet. Okay,
1: that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I if if his if his glove was really there, I think that is a position where you can sacrifice. With Torino, they were said they were sacrificing both sides, yes, offensively and defensively. So, uh, all right, outstanding. So that's number your six. Your number six guy uh, is McCann. My number six guy is Wells. Uh, pitched today, but uh, but I actually made this list on April twenty third, and I'm just sticking with it here as it goes. Uh, big upside for me. Uh, I've I've loved the way he's been pitching recently. Even today, he looked really good in terms of uh, getting a lot of swing and misses. I think he had 17 today, 16 in his last start, which was a lot. Uh, it was like 17 out of 89 pitches, something like that today. Uh, so, yeah, I everything I'm seeing about that, a guy who gets a lot of swinging strikes doesn't walk people. Uh, Gives up relatively few hits. He's got one of the best whips in the American league. And the only problem for him has been home runs. And I think the ballpark is going to straighten out some of that. But anyway, whatever you think about him, Wells could be one of the best pitchers in the American league, or he could be a guy who refers to being a triple A pitcher or four A pitcher that the Orioles don't know exactly what they have. If he were to suddenly lose it at, at some time, tremendous high variance for me. I think he will be one of the stories. He could easily be their first starter in the playoffs.
2: Yeah, I think the one good thing with Tyler Wells, if it does start to go south, is that he's already shown them he can be a shutdown reliever, which is what he did in his rookie season in 2021 after they took him in the Rule 5 draft. is he became Now that was on a 100-loss team, but he became the closer by the end of the year. So that's nice to have in your back pocket if the variance really does go in the wrong direction for Tyler Wells. But I think what's so interesting about him, it's not just the variance of performance, like, you know, he could end up being a A starter versus he could be the ace. It's the variance of how he gets guys out, because most of last year he was, OK, I'm taking something off. I'm not going to strike guys out. I'm trying to get through six innings every time. He get through six innings at, at 80 pitches or so with one or two strikeouts last season. This year, as you talked about, you know, whiffs higher and higher every single starts, more and more strikeouts. But we talk here on Thursday, and it honestly came at a little bit of a cost in Thursday start because he was at 95 pitches through five innings. He was in more three-ball counts on Thursday than he had been all season. And so there's, I think, variance within how he attacks guys, and there's also variance within just how he performs this year.
1: Yeah. The, the Angels are a little bit of a grinding team for, for some of that lineup. So that would be one of the teams that's probably going to give him a little difficulty uh, in those terms. So let's move on. Your number five guy.
2: I went with a right-handed pitcher as well. Um, I'm going to go with Kyle Bradish, who if we're just talking a guy just blatantly who could have the most variance and not pertaining to anything else with the team or the league, it could be Kyle Bradish because he's had a start where he's given up seven runs in two and a third innings. And he's had a start like we saw the other day where he gets through six and two thirds strong um, and looks like a guy who could be the ace of the staff at some point and really for Kyle Bradish, it is can he be that ace because I've said it on my show a lot I do think Bradish by the end of this year will be seen as the Orioles opening day starter in 2024 yeah. I do think the ceiling is that high for Kyle Bradish. I think he'll have enough time as long as he stays healthy this year to fully figure things out but there is a floor that's pretty low because we've seen some really really bad starts and Bradish, over the last couple of years has had some of the worst starts from any Orioles starting pitcher just because it can snowball on him. He can start to walk hitters. He can start to rely on his fastball way too much, which his 4 fastball is not a very good pitch. It'll get crushed. He's done better this year, staying disciplined, using the slider more than anything else. It's an elite pitch, but he just will have those starts where things unravel in the second or third. and He's never quite able to get it back together And he has to leave after recording maybe seven or eight outs. But on the flip side, if he's working the slider and working the curveball, he's through six or seven dominant innings like that. And I just think his ceiling is just as high as Grayson Rodriguez is potentially by the end of this year. And I I really do think that the variance is there because I think he could be the ace of this staff. And I think he could also be to the point where maybe he doesn't lose his job, but by the end of the year, he's the number five guy, and the Orioles are maybe trying to think: can we put him in the bullpen for a playoff series because we don't plan to use him as a starter? Yeah, you know that's a really interesting thing, and it's just wonderful
1: that the the Orioles can think about doing that with a Wells, with a British, whoever ends up in there. The Wells would adapt very quickly to relief, as you mentioned. But one of the things that makes him so dominant is the. Uh, release point as a taller man, and that his 97 mile an hour fastball is a hell of a lot faster to the hitter than what it is for other other uh, you know shorter pitchers. Uh, Love Bradish as well, and by the way, that was my tough Bradish. The tough decision was him or Wells as the last spot for for number six. So I picked Wells. Uh, I got some flack on Orioles Hangout from other people who who thought that uh, uh, Bradish should be the guy, and I I would agree. Uh, it's it's not an easy choice. I'll move on my number five guy is Felix Bautista now relievers they're they, you could you can make a good point that they probably should not be included on a list like this but the the fact of the matter is Bautista has a lot of very high leverage appearances and he's an extreme performance athlete in terms of, of, of high variance athlete. I'll, I'll call it just for starters. It's a, it's a lot of feast or famine. We saw the famine in that first series against the Red Sox with the pop fly that got dropped. And then the two run Homer. Um, and at other times this year, he's just looked, lights out and anybody gets on base. It's probably a stolen base, but there's also three strikeouts coming. So we've seen, um, you know, great things coming from it. We've, we've, we've also seen him being challenged right now. In fact, I think for the closer role, um, which actually could reduce his variance slightly. I think he'd still be a great setup guy if they decide to flip him in Cano, but but uh, uh, Bautista is is my number five guy because of the combination of high leverage appearances and and him being a very high variance athlete.
2: Yeah, and I think it's something we saw here on Thursday and that Brandon Hyde has said a lot is is Felix feels comfortable in the ninth inning, and Brandon Hyde is comfortable with Felix Bautista in the ninth inning. So even if Yenya Cano continues to not give up a run, if we get to, july and his era is still zero there's still a chance if felix is pitching well that cano is not the actual closer because brandon high just goes to cano whether it's the sixth the seventh or the eighth when the middle of the lineup's coming up and it's a one-run game and he knows he needs to get to that next inning get through that middle of the order and then if felix is comfortable in the ninth he's comfortable in the ninth and we've seen some variance from him just in performance this year the walks have been up early in the season but it's so funny because I found myself very worried after a couple of appearances there in, in late April from Felix Bautista where he would walk the bases loaded but the stuff would be so good, he'd strike his way out of it and, and the Oros would still win the game. And then I would realize like, he barely gave up any runs in any of those outings. Did he walk a lot of batters? Yes, he did. You know, He had multiple multi-walk outings. But the stuff is just so good that even when he has no idea where it's going, he's got enough to get somebody out. And, and, and that was definitely... Fun to watch. And now he's kind of settled back in, I think, a little bit more over the past couple of weeks. But, but you're right. I mean, he's going to have the ninth inning basically the whole year, which, which gives him some high leverage and, and some variance as well. Right. Now, I, I think if I understand from a production meeting, you stayed away from relievers. So Cano was on your, li- was not on your list, right? I just, yeah. Can- Cano was not on my list. And, and, I don't know. I, I expect him to give up a run at some point. I think we all do. Um, it's, you know,
1: it's, There's some things about what's going on with Cano that I just want to talk about in relation to Bautista. Bautista has the K rate to maintain his performance level. And one thing that's going on with Cano that's at a historic level right now is the balls hit in fair territory are getting gobbled up like nobody's business. And that just can't continue. You, you can't have a batting average on balls in play of what, 100 or whatever it's been for him so far this year. Uh, and keep that up. You can, uh, you know, be very dominant when you do what Felix Bautista does, and every out is a strikeout. Then you've got a much better chance to to uh, to, to hold your opponent. So there's one of the problems with Cano. I think you know it, I, I wouldn't fix it because it ain't broke overall right now. But if if he started to, to struggle and have some difficulties, one of the things you'd, you'd have to have to try and figure out is do you want to change some things
2: to try and improve his K rate? Yeah, one thing that I think they actually started doing in his last appearance Wednesday was he threw I believe 16 pitches and 13 of them were changeups. And the changeup's been his best whiff pitch this year and the Angels hitters just kept swinging over the top of it and he kept throwing it. Even though his sinker moves so much and is 97 miles an hour and gets all these ground balls, 13 out of 16 changeups and you saw more swings and misses and. And we'll have to see over the next couple of outings if he keeps doing that or if that was just something he saw in the Angels hitters, that they're not picking this up, let me just keep throwing this. But that could be a way to be proactive there, to say, oh, his last couple of outings, you know, he allowed his first barrel and his first extra base hit and you know, his first couple of hard hit balls that you know, ended up being hits instead of ground balls right at the second baseman. So maybe he's being a little proactive here to, to counteract that. Again, he is going to give up a run at some point. But it is very, very fun while he does not do that. Yeah, it's great. Great. Uh, the Zach Britton run
1: uh, a few years back was was similar, and it's it's just outrageousness. Uh, Britton had a, a, a very similar K rate, but he's the only one that I can remember who, who's able to maintain kind of this level of ridiculous. Uh, we're not allowing anybody to score for for a long period of time. I, I don't know if you if you know how to do it, by the way, but you you have uh, Stathead on on uh, Baseball Reference. Yes. You have that. Okay. So, I, is there a way to use SpanFinder to look for innings instead of games?
2: I do not know. While I love Stathead, I am not informed enough to do okay. the things that it can do at this point. All right. Very good. So, anyway,
1: a good a, a good tool out there if you have an interest in uh, in using that is if a Baseball Reference. It's only costs about $8 a month, I think, to get that. So, I find it to be worthwhile.
2: Uh, m- move us on here to number 4. I went with another right-handed pitcher, and he may even be higher on your list, but I went with Grayson Rodriguez. I I just think right now, I mean, we're seeing crazy variants start to start right now from Grayson Rodriguez. It is a very odd run that he is on right now. I talked about it on my show on Tuesday after he had what was definitely, I would say, the worst start of, of his big league career. I would call it a little bit worse than the Royal start, what he did on Monday against the Angels. And I get sometimes Shohei Otani will hit a ball 460 feet, and sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. But he's looking more hittable than I think we thought he would be. He's still getting swings and misses. Even when he's struggling, he's still getting swings and misses. But when he's in the zone, he's more hittable than we thought. And I don't think the Orioles are at the point where they're relying on Grayson Rodriguez. That the rotation is still good enough. There's still enough options where if they really had to make a change, like it really kept getting bad, they would have the options to do so. Like Cole Irvin could rejoin the rotation at this mm-hmm. point. Spencer Watkins is down there. He could rejoin the rotation at some point. He's, you know, he's a league average. St- <laughs> he's a league average starter who can get you through a couple of weeks while you make a decision. But what I will say about Grayson is we know the ceiling is him being the ace of this staff. He's got the stuff, he's got the prospect pedigree. It's there. We've seen flashes of it. But I didn't know the floor, even though it's been eight starts. He's a rookie. He's 23. I didn't know the floor could be somewhat consistently this low. Like you have one bad start, you have one bad start. It's your first two months in the big leagues. But when two out of three starts, you can't get out of the fourth inning and you're giving up eight-plus runs, that is concerning. And in terms of just straight-up variance, he's probably the player we've seen with the most variance so far this season because it's just been – night and day in back-to-back starts sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to rely on him yet and say, you know, if the O's are in a wild card three-game series, he is no doubt one of those three pitchers. I am hopeful that'll be the case come October. But right now, it just feels like if he gets to peak levels, the Orioles are different. And if he keeps throwing like he did on Monday, the O's will need to search for more answers than I think they thought they would need to find at this point in the season. You know, first of all, Grayson, also my number four guy. So we, we
1: match up on this one. Uh, it, tremendous variance and some of the things you mentioned are, are are all a part of that. And I want to go back and expand a little bit. But one of the things that's very refreshing about this Orioles team is it's not the Showalter Orioles where the rotation was constantly getting moved around every time there was an off day to try and advance your hottest pitcher and miss the start of a guy you'd rather not have started they've got five starters and they're going in order and and they they don't seem to be changing it and that is fantastic and honestly they're five starters i think right now i put them up there with just about anybody in the league in terms of, of of quality from top to bottom certainly of quality of the last guy i think the the orioles are about the highest in the major leagues right now and quality of, of the number five starter but even if you if you went match up one two three four five down the line toronto's not there Right now, they've got you know problems in, in, in terms of, of of their starters, and the, and the Rays are not there. Uh, even though they're an incredible start, they've got a better number one starter, we know, and McClanahan. But but the you know with the injuries they've had now, I think they've got uh, uh, more issues in that. To just amplify the points you made, Rodriguez is the the guy who's most obviously a top of rotation starter, and I actually have hoped that it, that Wells could be that too. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd probably make the point for Bradish as being a, a third guy who could be that guy if you think he'll be in the in the uh, you know starting a playoff game uh, for the Orioles. But uh, but Rodriguez, I, I I don't see him returning to Triple A at this point. Uh, I guess it could happen if he had you know three more bad starts in a row that are at the level it is. I just I don't see it happening. I think the struggle he needs to to work through is that it's okay to challenge big league hitters in the strike zone. And what he's, what he's been doing a lot is getting behind on counts, particularly early in ball games in that first inning. He's had a lot of trouble getting through. And he needs to find a way to keep the ball in the zone to get consistently ahead uh, by throwing strikes on two of the first three pitches, which is going to set up the arsenal of other choices he has to strike you out. Uh, so it's I'm, I'm very optimistic he's going to get there quicker rather than later. And if I look back to uh, Clemens, first trial in the major leagues he gave up like i want to say 20 hits in 17 innings but it was three more hits than innings however many it's it's it was and I, I, that's not very roger clemens like um but he he have f- figured it out fairly quickly obviously in terms of what it would take in the next year he's an unbelievable uh i think it was the next year he's 24 and 4 uh so you know it 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 will the light will go on like that when it goes on for Rodriguez, and all of a sudden you're going to have the most dominant, uh, one of the most dominant pitchers at baseball. When it does,
2: yeah, at some point he's going to need to, and you alluded to it, just start landing those off speed pitches for strikes early in the count. And, and right now I talked about this a lot after his last start. It just feels like you know he'll throw a fastball, he'll get a swing and a miss, maybe he'll get a called strike, and then he'll try to go to the slider, and and maybe he'll pull one. It'll be ten feet outside, or maybe he'll he'll just miss. But either way, he'll throw a ball and he'll say, I need a strike. I need to go back to my fastball. And it seems he's not, you know, abandoning his off-speed pitches, but he feels when he needs a strike right now, he can only go to the four-seamer. What he needs at the very least is a second pitch to be able to go to when he needs a strike. He's had that in the minor leagues. He needs to find that at this level, and I think that'll take him to – the next level, obviously, if he can land the, the curveball or the slider or the changeup consistently for strike one, then he can use all four pitches throughout that bat. And and he just becomes the Grayson we saw in, in double A and triple A.
1: All right. Outstanding. So we both agree on Grayson at number four. So we move up to your number three guy. Wouldn't be surprised if we get the same three guys
2: at the top of the batting order here, but I have an interesting one actually, again, for number three. And I think his variance has to do with who could replace him as well. If things go bad, bad, I have Jorge Mateo at number three, and I think on the positive side, if the Orioles can find the April version of Jorge Mateo, and that can be somewhat sustained for a good chunk of the year, if you a player who's playing gold glove defense, who's going to steal you 40-plus bases, and is also going to hit even in the 270 to 280 range with power, he hit six home runs mm-hmm. in the month of April as well. That is an all-star shortstop. And even if you don't make the all-star team because shortstop is such a deep position, that is probably, behind Adley Rutschman, the most valuable player in terms of war by the end of the season, if he's playing like that. Now, I don't know if we're going to get that because so far in May, I don't think Jorge Mateo has had more hits than you can count on one hand at this point in the month of May. So it's been a steep decline after maybe the best month of his big league career. Now, that's already a lot of variance. But what's really interesting here is that if May and June look like May, basically if he has another month like this, it could be either much more Joey Ortiz time or potentially Jordan Westberg time. So if Mateo is April Mateo, he's going to hold Westberg down in AAA and may even hold him until the trade deadline when he ends up on another team. But if Mateo is May Mateo for a while, he's going to find himself on a bench roll. And the Orioles may have even more variance because they may be relying on some more rookies down the stretch. And I think Gunnar Henderson would go to shortstop. And, you know, you'd basically have Arias Henderson and Fraser in there for a while. And it would be a really tough decision for the Orioles brass to say, at what point do we flip the switch on Fraser or Arias? and play one of these young guys every single day along with Henderson. And I think people thought Mateo was going to make that decision easy for them by just not hitting. Then he did, and I think he maybe slowed up the timeline for a Joey Ortiz and a Jordan Westberg. And, and, And that's why I have him on the list, because I think he has the biggest domino effect of anyone on this team right now. And in terms of that, that means more rookies, and more rookies always mean more variance for a team. OK, now, yeah, good sliding uh, uh, a set of reason, rationale for that.
1: Uh, Mateo is my number one guy. And, and I just think that the, the individual variance of Mateo is so tremendous. Uh, and I also did this list on April 23rd. So we've gotten a taste of, of just how great Mateo could be. And, you know, Mateo as a 900 or high 800s OPS player is one of the best players in all of baseball. Forget shortstop, forget the American League. He's one of the best players in all of baseball if he can do that. Uh, if if uh, he's at 725 or 750 as an OPS, which it will be challenging for him to maintain. I don't know actually what he is right now, but he's probably actually in that range or just above it. Um, he would probably be about the best Oriole. You know, up there with Rutschman in terms of of uh, the value he would give you as a as a shortstop there with his defense and with his base running, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I just, it's it's a matter of individual variance. But your 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 point is excellent about all the options the Orioles have in terms of bringing up these other players that could hinge on the play of Mateo. I just I, I don't see demand for Mateo anywhere. The same way, I don't see demand for Santander anyway. I think you know both these guys seem to be more valuable to the Orioles, or at least the Orioles put a higher value on them than, than than anyone else. They'd have gladly traded Santander, I believe. They should have gladly probably traded Mateo if if the if anyone had come forward with the right offer, given how stacked they are in the minor leagues at the position. No offense to Mateo, they should, you know. Hopefully, they would have gotten something for him. But I think they looked at him and they said, no, he's he's too good for us to trade him for, you know, pennies on the dollar at this point. So I don't really see him going anywhere else. And in particular, if they're in a point where they really want to make a change from Mateo, I don't really see him having a lot of value. I don't think there's another team that, and, and maybe you got a different opinion on this, maybe there's another team who's just down a shortstop due to injury that would say, Hey, Mateo's our guy.
2: That's what it would take. I thought maybe the Dodgers would come calling when they had all of their infield issues. I I really did think that was going to happen. I think one more player I would throw in that group of they're just more valuable to the Orioles than anyone else. Everybody in your crew identifies as
0: either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular
2: price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Is Ramon Arias, who could, when he gets back from this injury, start to fall into that category of, if he comes back slow from the injury, does he become expendable? And I had heard rumblings about the Orioles were actually in Arias trade talks, and and the big team was the Mets over the offseason trying to get one of those Mets like borderline rotation pitchers like David Peterson or Tyler McGill, and the Orioles thought a one-for-one a for David Peterson was worth it. And the Mets were like, we are not giving up one of our starting pitchers for a guy who we see as a utility infielder. And the huh. Orioles saw as a starting third baseman. Gold and glove, think, starting third baseman. Yeah, and I think that's the difference here, and I think the same would be said for Mateo. The Orioles would say, we want a major league-level pitcher, and another team would say, Mateo is a pinch runner and a bench bat. And the Orioles would say, Mateo is a starting shortstop in the major leagues.
1: And the interesting thing about both these players, about both Mateo and about Arias, is that those are guys who are, I think, fairly critical to the Orioles continuing to hit left-handers and and you know obviously the, they the big bats in the minor leagues are Cowser could be up I guess we could see Kerstad as another left-handed hitter and then they have Westberg obviously who's totally outperformed AAA at this point just he's waiting there like Don Baylor did frankly right now so he's waited way too long on there already I uh, but most of what they would bring up from AAA is more left-handed bats so that's why I don't have any fear about what they do versus versus right-handed pitching but I have a lot of fear and it seems to me the Orioles are, are attracting a lot of left-handed starters against. I don't know if – I haven't really checked to see how much of that was rotation set up to try and, you know, hey, we want left-handers against the Orioles, so let's wait him a day and, 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 and get him a start, get an opportunity that way. But the Orioles faced a disproportionately high number of left-handers.
2: Yeah, and, and you saw it in that Tiger series when Joey Ortiz made his debut. And, and it, it turned out Ortiz was only here because the Orioles were facing, you know, f- three or four consecutive left handers. And it was, you know, well, we don't want to play Taryn Vavra every day. And we're worried about playing Gunnar Henderson every day against these guys. So Joey's on the 40 man. He's a right handed hitter. Might as well, you know, let him get his feet wet. And and that was so crazy to see. It was just lefty after lefty after lefty. They have seen a good amount of left handers at this point, And that's kind of where they're their roster build is interesting because their bench guys, some of them are more so just there to do that. Like James McCann, like we saw Thursday, James McCann and Ryan McKenna are going to be in the lineup against those left-handers off the bench, but it would be really nice if Jorge Mateo could hit lefties like that, because if he does get pushed into a bench role, if you can still play him against left-handers, every once in a while and then also use him as a defensive replacement and a pinch runner in other games he's still very valuable for you off the bench yeah great point point. and of course a lot of fans don't really realize this
1: and especially fans who are mostly football fans the orioles 40-man roster does not currently include jordan westberg so if they put him on the 40-man roster they've got to drop somebody else which is hard now the orioles are stacked with talent and they'd might have to drop a pitcher to do it. Not sure exactly what they would, what they, how they would go about it, who they would drop from it. But Westberg would then be on the, uh, would be able to be shuttled up and down. Which they don't. I don't think they really want to do that. I don't think they really want to have him lose at bats. On the other hand, I think he's proven everything he can at Norfolk. It's a matter of how can they get him some advantageous at bats at the major league level, and getting him to face a number of left-handers might be a kind of an ideal thing. I haven't looked at his triple A splits is he a heavy is he a, a, a does he hit left handers
2: well he's not a huge uh splits guy he's uh he's he's a fairly even on both sides um he may hit lefties a little bit better but he's not he's not Colton Cowser like where Cowser is mashing righties and is hitting like 140 against lefties right now i i know for Westburg it's nothing close to that right now in triple a that's
1: great to hear for Cowser frankly because he'll be a fantastic platoon player when he comes up uh, and eventually he'll be a starter. He'll be fine. But uh, that's great to hear. We're up to number three for uh, three, number three was Mateo for you, right? Okay, so my number three guy is Adley Rutschman. I and I don't. I I think I feel better about this over the last three weeks. But he's certainly already one of the best players in the league in terms of uh, certainly of catchers. But I don't think we really know what his ceiling is right now. And I think we also don't really. We're not really admitting to ourselves the risk of regression, and in his case, the risk of regression is probably a regression to maybe a seven seventy-five OPS or a seven sixty OPS. You know, something that would just be boy, we hope for more out of that out of Adley this year, but something that you know still isn't. You know, he started off the year five for six on opening day, and and uh, uh, we thought you know. He's, he's going to have five for five, right? Five for five, reach six times, right? On opening day. But he uh, obviously is not going to do that on any kind of consistent basis. He's cooled now a little bit, did have a big two run homer today, but a guy who I, I really have a hard time pinning down a specific uh, point for him. Some of the things that went right last year are not going as right. He's not getting as many doubles up the gap. Um, he's hitting with, with good power, a little bit, a little bit better power in terms of the home runs, but he's also a, uh, uh, Drawing many more walks this year. Um, I just sent you a message here. I'm sorry about that. There you go. Um, but uh, uh, it's it's one of these things where where I don't think we know ceiling or floor on Rushman.
2: Yeah, I think for Adley Rushman, and I will say um, he was the one where I was debating where, where does he end up on this list. Mm-hmm. I actually ended up not putting him on here. And I think it was almost a stubbornness by me thinking there's not a lot of negative variance for Adley Rutschman in terms of there's a baseline he's set with the way he calls a game, his pitch framing, his blocking, his arm, his ability to get on base. Even when he's in a little mini slump in terms of hitting wise, I just felt like he's just going to be a plus plus player no matter how he does power hitting wise. And you mentioned not as many doubles on the flip side. He is hitting left-handers like he did in the minors this year, whereas last year he basically wasn't getting any hits off of lefties. One thing that I think we haven't seen Adley unleash, and he wasn't this low on the list last year, but uh, it has been this year. If you look at the Orioles' qualified hitters, I believe there's there's either eight or nine of them right now who have enough at-bats to qualify. Adley is either eighth or seventh, second to last, basically, in hard hit rate of all the hitters on the Orioles. Only Adam Frazier, who's basically never hit the ball hard in his career, has always been at the bottom of the teams he's been on, is below Adley Rutschman right now, and he's still hitting for power. Now, that probably has something to do with the lack of doubles and a lot more singles to his credit at this point, but we know he can hit the ball hard, and he's done it a lot, and if he can do that moving forward, that's where he moves up the list
1: yeah I, I i agree with that it, it has his batting average at bowl in bowl in play this year because one thing that's definitely been true this year is he's had a lot of cheap hits yes, a lot of off-field hits in particular hits left-handed to left field that have been kind of bloopy or dribbly uh th- th- that have been impressive but uh yeah that batting average at bowl in play was something actually last year is a little bit concerned i it wasn't for him um I'm, I'm confusing players. I don't want to. I don't want to go down this this track. But I, if if we look at the batting average for balls in play this year for Rutschman, it would probably give a sense of what opportunity there is because he can certainly increase his line drive rate. But I would argue that he's probably not going to pick up as many cheap hits as he
2: has so far this year. Yeah, he's at 304 right now. It looks like on the BABIP, so he's he's a little on the on the high side. So so definitely getting lucky, and and he's had some some balls bloop in, and sometimes it's some skill there when you're able to have the back control that he has and the coverage of the strike zone that he has, that can be a skill a little bit, but at some point that being a skill just turns into luck that there's kind of a, there's a point right there where, where the skill turns into just, you know, when your Babbitt gets up towards 350 and and beyond, it just becomes luck. Uh, He definitely has good back control, but it will be interesting to see if he starts hitting more line drives and drives the ball more, you know, hopefully it doesn't turn into a Ryan Mountcastle situation where he just becomes much more unlucky as he starts hitting the ball harder but uh it'll definitely help yeah we've certainly seen Orioles in in history Rick Dempsey
1: a big one who who had a lot of line drives right at players when when he was going but i I, I don't have good stats for him for batting average ball on play I know it was it was not something we looked at back in those days let's just put it that way. uh so Rutschman's my number three and he's not on your list at all so you said he saw uh, uh so we're down to your number two player
2: Yeah, my number two player, um, I was back and forth between my top two, who to put at two, who to put at one. Um, I'm going to go with a guy who had the biggest variance season last year in terms of first versus second half, and I'm going to put Austin Hayes at number two right now for the Orioles because we're not seeing, I think, the level we saw in the first half from Austin Hayes last year, specifically in terms of the power, but Austin Hayes has been a very productive hitter so far this year for the Orioles. Now you're talking about batting average on balls in play. Austin Hayes is at 394 right now this year. So (laughs) already you start to look at those stats and say, okay, something's going to come down a little bit. But he's hitting 312. He's got an 859 OPS on the season. He's got 10 doubles. He's got five homers. He's striking out a lot and he's not walking. That's what we know we're going to see from Austin Hayes. But when that number is over 300 and he's in there, not every day. He had a little hand issue and he missed, you know, on and off for about a week, but he's in there more than he has been during other six-week stretches of of any given season. He is a just solid piece of this team, and he hit leadoff on Thursday. He's not generally going to do that. That's pretty much Cedric Mullins' spot. But in the five or six hole of the Orioles lineup and in left field every day, he is a huge part of just stabilizing the Orioles. And when he goes in and out of the lineup, whether it be for injury or just – Bad performance, inconsistent performance, whatever it may be, this Orioles team, yes, you can argue that, well, you know, they have an easy replacement. You know, Hayes struggles, Colton Kowser comes up, takes the spot in the outfield, and there they go. Well, as I've mentioned already, Colton Kowser just cannot hit lefties right now. So he is not at the point where he can play every day in the big leagues. And Kyle Stowers couldn't seem to hit anybody in the big leagues when he was up here for the last couple of weeks. So I would not play him every day. So as soon as that Hayes injury comes, you're looking at Adam Frazier or Ryan McKenna or Taryn Vavra in the outfield every single day. And I just don't know if that's an answer for the Orioles. And we saw it last year as well. Austin Hayes first half looked like an all-star Austin Hayes second half. He was kind of unplayable down the stretch for the Orioles last year. And so I just think with that amount of variance, he doesn't impact how the team does as much as an Adley Rutschman does, or as much as some of the pitchers we've talked about do every five days. But when he's just out there, I almost think for Austin Hayes, if we're not talking about Austin Hayes, I think that's best for the Orioles because if he's just out there five games a week and is producing well enough and he's not striking out to the level where we say he's an unplayable player and he's staying healthy and he's playing good enough defense in left field, he's just such an important stabilizing presence for the Orioles. And the flip side can get really bad, and that's what we saw in the second half of last year.
1: All right, I, I, I left Hayes intentionally off the list, and and my reasoning it basically draws on a lot of the arguments you're making here. One is that you you mentioned the stability you get from a player like Austin Hayes. It's exactly what this list shouldn't be about, right? It's the high variance players. So the other thing is that Hayes is a player I would fully expect to drop into a platoon role if he's not hitting. So. Hayes Cowser. It's not and not hard to believe that the Orioles would turn to to a uh, a compliment like that. A couple pretty good or pe- of defensive outfielders that people think can play center field. Both of them. Hayes actually doesn't have particularly good defensive results these last couple of years. Uh, He's certainly not Mullins out there in center field. And so when you do it, you want to do it judiciously to give Mullins a day off against the left hander, but um, it's not typically something you want to, you want to pull the string on very often. So Hayes is one of of several players in there. I think he's an important piece to the Ravens. I I think he gives, you see, it's hard for me to break this habit, but I think there's a lot of, of Orioles players who give you the background that makes their support cast one of the best in baseball. It's one one why they have such a difficult judgment among even their 40 man roster or the 26 that are that are at at uh, the major league level is because these guys are, are good enough probably to get the Orioles within a couple of games of 500 in aggregate before these top six guys and their high variance takes over. And I think interestingly these guys are are the ones and and you got to really talk about wins above average when I talk about getting you within 500. Um, you know, th- these guys could, could toss up, you know, 20 wins above 500 among them, maybe more, um, or, or, you know, it could come from somebody else that that's, that's not on either of our list, like a canoe or somebody like that would be, would, would chip in significantly towards that total. But Hayes to me is a guy, he's got a fairly limited upside, honestly, I believe. And if he, if he starts to play poorly, they'll platoon him and then they'll dump it. I think it, it'll 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 be in in that order things will happen. So I didn't really he he didn't make my list because of that.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair too, and 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 that's kind of the other side exactly as you said of the argument of you know how important is he to the Orioles right now. And I think he's been like very underrated in how big a part he's been to the offense this year. The fact that Austin Hayes has been hitting over three hundred basically the whole year is very important to the Orioles' offense just being stabilized. But I completely understand the flip side of what I'm saying is that. Well, if he's just the stabilizing guy and he's not the take-them-over-the-top guy right now, then how much does the variance play in? I think a little bit of the ranking for me was I don't think anyone behind him, if he went to a platoon, would be ready to play every day. Now you could argue, okay, a Cowser hayes platoon could work for the Orioles. That's fair. The one part that worries me about Hayes a little bit is he's actually hitting righties better than lefties this year. So the platoon at the moment, although they would still probably do it, wouldn't make as much sense. But I I do completely understand that part of the argument where it's like they might have a solution if things go bad. Whereas, for example, you know, on my list, like Braddish and Rodriguez, if things both go bad for those two guys, I don't know that they have an in-house solution right. um, at this point.
1: Yeah. So they they you know they might go back to Irvin, or they they have other guys they could go to I guess in triple A or even double A to, to to try and get it fixed, but it wouldn't be uh it wouldn't be a good solution. And it probably means they'll end up trading talent for a for a starting pitcher, which that's been suggested so broadly. And right now, I'm thinking these five cards they've got are pretty damn good. I don't I don't think I'm making a I don't think I'm discarding and drawing uh with 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 what the Orioles have currently. Now the only reason I, I changed my mind on that would be just because you've got this surplus of talent at the upper minor league level that they will waste if they don't trade it. Uh, But it's a very difficult judgment because the the Orioles have a bunch of guys who are just a little bit above average, mostly uh, who are giving them a little something and it'd be a shame to trade them away. But you know, you just, you you can't hold all the sand in your hands forever in terms of, uh, of what's going on with this
2: roster. I think we are hitting the Jordan Westberg apex pretty soon here, which is the, he can only continue to get better at triple a so much before he either a gets called up b gets traded to another team that calls him up or c this happens to some players he his production wouldn't tank but gets so for lack of a better term bored at triple a that it's not you know 310 400 500 anymore it's 270 you know 350 and 450 maybe and that's still a productive player but We're getting to that. I mean, he's over 500. He has eclipsed pretty much everyone in terms of AAA plate appearances, in terms of when they finally got called up, and he's done better than most of them production-wise, so I almost just have this feeling that if we don't see him by June, maybe just deal him away, and and you could get a really good player for your major league team if you're not going to call him up, and I get they don't have to add him to the 40-man until after this year, and they can wait as long as they want, but at what point does he just get basically angry with the entire situation and, and that starts to go south? I mean, he's, he's 24 and a half now, right, basically? I mean, it's it's too late. I mean, you it, if you any if you look at
1: the great hitters in, in baseball, one of the uniform things is they all make the major leagues at an early age. And it, college has changed that a little bit in, in terms of that, but still 23 is kind of on the outside. We see Henderson now, a high school prospect, making it at 20. You're much more likely to see that sort of thing than the reverse with players like who, you know, part of Westberg's issue was he had to live through the COVID era. So you can say he got delayed by a year by that. But I mean, he's ready. He needs to be in the major leagues now, not later. Um, The times this has been done to Orioles players, they held down some players for too long. And the three I'll bring up: Merv Rettenmund, Bobby Grich, and Don Baylor were all held in the minor leagues too long. Grich came up was immediately the all-star shortstop as soon as he, they finally did come up, but they had to send him down again after he hit. I want to say three sixty-six or three seventy in nineteen seventy. Baylor, take a look at his minor league stats. He was on uh, tops rookie cards. It seemed like for for several years in a row. And Rettenmund had a had was the international league or the minor league player of the year as well. Might have been as early as sixty-eight. And then he was struggling to get at bats in the Orioles outfield in 1970 when he hit 318. The next year, when he was among the league leaders in hitting, he was still having trouble, you know, getting at bats in that Oriole outfield because they had Buford and Blair and Frank Robinson. And you know, at some point, you just got to make a decision. And the decision, in my mind, always should be trade a veteran and keep your young player. And especially if you're going to be a, a, a payroll challenge team, that better be the decision they make. So I really hate the idea of trading Westberg. I think you trade Mateo first even though Mateo might be the better player.
2: Yeah, it it is possible because of the upside defensively and speed that Mateo brings that, that Westberg just won't bring. I mean, he's a solid defender and he's got solid speed, but he's never going to be to the elite level, I think. And that's what Mateo is in those two categories. So if he just hits enough, you know, he's a better player than a lot of shortstops. So they, they've got some really, really, I think interesting. It's a good problem, right? It's better than having bad Mm -hmm. problems. They have good problems right now, but, uh, They got to make a decision. If they just sit on their hands, you know, if they are seeing some of these AAA guys as tradable assets, those guys are going to lose value the longer you sit on your hands. Because if he turns 25 and he's still mashing in AAA, well, he starts to float into the category of quad A players who are still in AAA and and having good results.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think there there is an additional fear with Westberg that I just want to bring up is that the, the ballpark situation in Baltimore definitely does not favor him. And, and I think he's going to be – any kind of power expectations you have for Westberg, better temper them significantly for his arrival at Camden Yards. I think it'll be a very tough park for him to hit at. Now, it's not like he doesn't go up the gap a fair amount uh, you know, for doubles. He's definitely a, a, a uh, balanced – uh, double and a home run kind of kind of hitter. So you've got that as a hope, but it's, it's not like the left-handers that they have on the farm who are going to be fine as power hitters. Um, it, it's going to be more like uh, you've got a player who doesn't have as much power as Mountcastle and is really struggling to get the to get the
2: ball out to left field. Yeah, and, and you know it's the big difference with him and a guy like Connor Norby, who's much further from the majors, even though he is in Triple A at the moment, is that Norby's power alley really is right center, even though he's a right-handed hitter, so he would still play well at Camden Yards, despite him being a righty in the wall move back. Jordan Westberg, as you say, he's a deadpool power hitter, and that is just as Ryan Mountcastle has learned over the last yeah. couple of years, is not going to fly as much in Baltimore now.
1: Yeah, yep, absolutely. Okay, so he was your. Who was it you were talking about? It was your number two player, Austin Hayes. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't Westbrook. We got on a a little bit of a tangent here. I'll go to my number two, and that's uh, Gunnar Henderson. Uh, Growing pain, certainly in year two, we've seen this. But one of the nice things is that walk rate has looked great. Um, The strikeouts are at a very high level. The defense, I don't think he's completely settled in. What I'm seeing at third base is great arm, a little bit erratic in terms of where he goes. Seems to keep the ball very low. Mountcastle has been only, I would say, adequate in terms of of scooping balls from uh, from that side, and and that will be potentially a problem for him for his career if he stays at the position. I think he's probably a better bet to go to shortstop and and deal with um, those throws. You get a lot of routine plays, obviously, at shortstop at at uh, third base. There's a lot more reactionary defense, and you know, that's why they call it the hot corner, right? And, and then some longer throws that, that can create problems. So that's just the defensive side. On the offensive side, we've seen the plate discipline continue. I think it's going to pay off for him eventually, but he does need to cut that strikeout rate. Um, it was a little bit of a bugaboo. Elias mentioned it specifically in terms of one of the things that held him back from being promoted to AAA originally was just, hey, this strikeout rate, if you had to pick on something, that would be it. And he was otherwise you know, pretty much tearing up AAA uh, it's, it's a, you know, there is a still a tremendous variation in what Gunnar Henderson can produce for the, for the Orioles for the rest of the season. And I wouldn't be shocked if he were the, um, MVP of the playoffs forever along the Orioles last. And I wouldn't be shocked if he were the best Orioles player in the second half, including Rutschman. And I also wouldn't be shocked if he struggles like this all year, ends up hitting 231, uh, still with a decent walk total, but his power numbers are off. And we say, you know, damn it, this, this just, this was
2: a lost year of development for Gunner in some ways. It's a good transition because he is my number one on my list. And I think, you know, it's interesting looking at, at Rutchman versus Henderson for this list. And I think the reason why I put Henderson number one and I did not rank Rutchman is I just felt we have seen Adley go through a little bit of struggles and he's still so good. And generally, we've just seen him be so good. We're seeing a real, somewhat extended struggle for Gunnar Henderson right now. And I think it makes me think more and more about what the flip side could look like. And that is why I put him at number one, because if we get a second half of mostly what he looked like in September when he was called up last year, if we get a second half of maybe he's playing a lot more shortstop in the second half. Maybe something happens Mateo wise and Ortiz's bat isn't quite there to be an everyday player. And it's just Gunnar Henderson. We saw a little bit of shortstop last year. He's better than he is at third, and he is a really good – he's not Ortiz or Mateo level, but he is the next rung down defensively at shortstop as well. I think that can help even his offensive production if he's in just a better mindset and a more comfortable position for him at shortstop. But you mentioned you know, the swing decisions are going to be there. I almost think – and this has been brought up by others as well – if he took that down a notch, it might help with his actual quality of contact, his power – And in terms of just like a very baseline stat, his batting average and his slugging percentage going up is that if he's a little more aggressive early in the counts like he was when he first came up last year and he just said, I'm just going to hit the ball. Like, I'm here, I'm 20, let's go. Gunnar Henderson might need a little bit of that to to flip things. But if he is the player we know he's going to be one day, if he is that in the second half of this season, the Orioles go from plucky, fun team to watch out because if Gunnar Henderson is essentially hitting third while Adley Rutschman hits second, and you've got, you know, whomever Santander and Mountcastle and whomever's hitting, hitting well behind them, that's a scary, scary lineup.
1: You know, this is one of the interesting thing, because for one of Rutschman or Henderson, and I don't really care which, I don't think it's, it's, it's a, it's a certainty which one it needs to be, but one of them needs to hit cleanup for the Orioles. And the reasoning is pretty simple, that first of all, you know, I think there's some value in having a, a, a hitter between the two that can take advantage of two left-handed bats against right, a right-handed pitcher and not give yourself the, we want to bring in a left-hander and face three straight, even though Rutschman has hit left-handed pitching pretty well this year. But much more importantly, much more baseline, guys with high walk rates should hit cleanup. And modern lineup theory recognizes that you, you, the number four hitter leads off the second most innings of anybody after the leadoff hitter. The number, the number three spot for, for leading off innings is the number five hitter. The number three spot in the batting order leads off the fewest innings of any position. So you're not taking advantage of Gunner's walk rate and his ability to steal bases, the speed he brings and whatnot. I mean, bat him clean up. I, 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 yes, there's going to be some struggles Some struggles with Brian Mountcastle there. If you, if you bat him clean up. You will get his speed in the second inning, leading off some innings and causing problems for opposing pitchers. And and I I really like that idea a, a lot better. Now, in truth, they really haven't run too much with Henderson so far this year. But uh, but I think there's something there to be to be uh, to take advantage of.
2: Yeah, and, and it may be a little bit of just what's going on in his head right now as a 21 year old, and and you can see it. Like I'm not someone who minds at all kind of letting the emotions loose, whether they're positive or negative on the field. And I know some people feel more strongly about the negative body language. Like he's thrown the helmet, he's thrown the bat, he's screamed after some strikeouts. And I get it. Like he's never struggled like this in his baseball career. Like this is probably the longest stretch of struggling he has ever had. He rolled through high school, he had a couple of stretches in the minor leagues, but nothing like this. He rolled through the minor leagues and he had a great first month of the Bay Leagues. It's the first time this has happened to him. So I get it. And I don't really mind that. The stealing in the other parts of the game might just be, you know what? We have Jorge Mateo, we have Cedric Mullins, we even have Ryan McKenna, Austin Hayes, and Adam Frazier at this point. If you don't want to have that be, you know, number one big part of your game right now while we get the bat back, that's okay. And also, it is, although he's walked a lot, he hasn't gotten on base nearly as much as we think he can just because the batting average has been at 170 for most of the year. And so just not as many opportunities. Uh, to swipe a bag but I I do agree with with the hitting fourth we've actually seen it some even while he's been in the slump like if they're you know he's had a couple of hits they're facing a righty he's been in there in the four spot a couple of times usually with a Santander kind of sandwiched in between Rutchman and Henderson and I I just think you know when he gets back to that level that we're going to see he'll probably steal some more bases the defense might get better and it'll just be a a great spot for for him and for the Orioles to be in
1: It is interesting too, with the, with the rules of relief pitching being what they are today, that each reliever needs to face three batters unless they end an inning and then you can pull them, yada, yada, yada. Um, It really helps to put Henderson, a guy who's not hitting left-handers in a more advantageous position relative to other right-handed bats that you trust, such as Mountcastle or or the switch hitting Santander or the switch hitting um, Rutschman to put him in between two bats like that. But I, 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 I really like two four for those two guys um I, you know we, we certainly become accustomed to Rutchman batting in the two spot there's no reason why he can't be the Ken singleton of this lineup and hit third for the Orioles for years uh, to play um but I think you you, you his, his double play rate last year was very low in terms of double plays per opportunity in that two spot um we have not seen the same thing this year he's hit into some double plays. And I, I think that they probably will think about it. The main consideration to me is not how Rutschman will hit in either spot. I think he'd be
2: fine either place. I think it's it's how does it impact the lineup around him? Yeah, and and they're going to do a lot of of tinkering. I think as the season goes on and as they get more of these young guys up here and the, the ones that are here get more established into the lineup, like where do they fit in? Where does Joey Ortiz fit into the lineup if he really starts to hit like we've seen in AAA? You know, where does a Ramon Arias fit in? to the lineup when he comes back because he hit leadoff once this year. He hit fourth a couple of times this year. Brandon High was really moving him around uh before the injury. I think there's a there's kind of the the core four up there of of Mullins, Rutchman, Santander, and Mountcastle that are all going to be in the top five in the lineup no matter what at this point. It's just about squeezing Henderson in there uh if the bat can return. And and that's kind of brings it back to to why I had him Number one, if the bat returns, you add him and you become like a core five of that lineup that the top five hitters there are a scary five to face. I really do think that teams feel like right now, if we can get a high velocity guy in there, whether he be righty or lefty, and he can get a fastball up in the zone to Gunnar Henderson, there is a hole in his swing right now and teams feel okay against Gunnar Henderson. That will not be the case for most of his career. And once that stops being the case later this year, that's where everything goes up for the Orioles, uh, especially offensively.
1: Yeah, really looking forward to that. And uh, uh, as we as we spoke earlier, I have Mateo number one. We already touched on him, so that completes our list here. Connor, really a pleasure to do this discussion with you. Obviously, a, a, a very high level uh, getting to talk to you about this, and I, I appreciate that tremendously, being a longtime Oriole fan. Uh, tell folks where they can find your work online.
2: Yeah, you can check out the Locked on Orioles podcast wherever you get your pods. Uh, We are five days a week, so Monday through Friday, you wake up in the morning. That episode has been posted uh, generally with a recap of the game from the night before and then some other Orioles news and notes and analysis of what's going on in Birdland. We're also on YouTube, so make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to the Locked on Orioles YouTube page. And you can find us on Twitter at Locked on Orioles as well uh, for some Orioles musings and some things that get the fan base riled up, other things that are just uh essentially "let's go Orioles" posts that's, uh hypes everybody up as well. But uh, it's re- been really fun to kind of build with the Orioles community. And, and you mentioned, you know, talking through the O's for for an hour here. You know, I'm, I'm I'm 30 minutes a day basically. The episodes are about 30 minutes talking about this team every single day, and it's just become a part of my life now. Where you know, everyone's like, "Oh, you, you really want to talk more about the Orioles? You do it five days a week?" It's like, well, I'm already prepared to do it. So you know, just right off the top, and, and I kind of continue. Now, I, I
1: know the feeling. It's uh, it's definitely something that uh, I, I could talk an hour per day about the Ravens, and a lot of days I do, but, uh, but this is really a lot of fun to do some crossover episodes and, and get this done once in a while. I uh, want to tell other people out there, if you'd like to be on an episode of Film Study, uh, hit me up with a DM on Twitter. They're always open. Topics uh, uh, broadly. If you even want to do an Orioles crossover episode that's not one of the four we have planned for this week, I hope you'll listen to those, uh, would uh, would love to do that as well. But there'll be lots of Ravens offseason content. If you want to be an armchair GM and have a particular thing, you have your own statistic, whatever it might be, I'd love to hear from you and, and talk to you about that. And I'll get back to you, I, I promise, very quickly. Connor, thanks again for coming on. Ken, thank you so much for having me. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study.